Hey, this is Jeremy from Reasonable Doubts. Our last episode featured an interview with Ibn Warwick, one of the most popular modern-day critics of Islam. With the limited time I had to interview Warwick, I felt it was important to cover a topic you rarely hear anything about, Quranic criticism. Of course, there are many other topics that intersect with Islam that Warwick has some insightful perspectives on, topics like Islamic extremism, the global war on terror, and the challenges that come with criticizing Islam in an increasingly multicultural political climate. These are all topics Reasonable Doubt listeners are no doubt interested in hearing more about. Luckily, after my interview with Warwick, Ed Brayton from Science Blog's Dispatches from the Culture Wars interviewed Warwick on these topics for his show, Declaring Independence. Ed Brayton's been nice enough to share that interview with Reasonable Doubts listeners, so if you like what you hear, please consider checking out Ed's show at declaringindependenceradio.com. And as always... Please send any questions, comments, or challenges to doubtcast at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy listening to this RD Extra, and be sure to check us out next week for Reasonable Doubts, Episode 61, The Curious Case of Robert P. George. We're probably going to have a single guest for the full hour, and that guest is Eben Warak. That is the nom de plume of a skeptic born in what is now Pakistan, raised as a Muslim, and now an atheist, who has uh, written several books critical of Islam. Uh, Ibn Warak is a senior fellow with the Center for Inquiry, an organization that I have been involved with for a long time, and rather unusually, he is here in the studio with us, which we don't usually have. We usually do this over the phone, so Ibn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I know this has been a very long day for you. You've been uh, teaching a, a seminar on Islamic history for, what, seven hours, eight hours now? Yes. Uh, so we, uh, we really do appreciate you taking even more time tonight to, uh, to be here with us. Well, I hope I remain coherent by the, by the end of the program. <laughs> well, hopefully the champagne uh, – we have, we, we have champagne poured in the, in the studio, so we're just having a party here and we'll, uh, we'll go as long as we're all coherent. Uh, you and I had dinner last night along with several other people and, and you talked about – you spoke about how journalists and writers – tried to describe you. Uh, you mentioned that Christopher Hitchens in particular had described you as a recovering Pakistani ex-zealot who was shaken out of his belief in Islam by the Salman Rushdie affair. Uh, but in fact, you were born into an sort of Indian Muslim family before Pakistan was created. Yes, I was born in 46 uh, in, in, in a town which remains in modern-day India, and my family moved to Karachi in '47 at the creation of Pakistan. And uh, he mentioned that, that it was that you were sort of shaken out of your belief in Islam by the Salman Rushdie affair. That and, and that that part is correct. It's the, uh, the I don't know how he where he got the zealot part um, because I, I, I zealotry is really not a part of my character. I've yeah. never been a zealot. <laughs> Of any kind. I so you, you were, were you were you raised sort of a, a, a devout Muslim? Was that part of of your upbringing, or was it just sort of just part of the general culture you were from? Um, my father was not particularly religious, but he tended to give in to social pressures. And for for example, he sent us to a Quranic school. It's one of my earliest memories, uh, where we learned to recite the Quran without understanding a word. Uh, but uh, and and we of course uh, various uh, religious festivals like Eid al-Fitr or Eid al-Bakr we were uh, 
we 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 attended the mosque and so on with others. Um, we, you know, we went through the motions. But. It doesn't sound particularly devout. It sounds like what we would call Christmas and Easter Catholics in America. Yes, yes. I think uh, uh, the only one who was really, really genuinely devout in my family at the time was my grandmother, my my father's mother. Um, did she play she a big role in your upbringing? Or? She did. She because I uh, I didn't have a mother at that right from the age of one. My mother died of tuberculosis and. Uh, I was essentially brought up by my grandmother, and she tried to sort of inculcate some sort of uh, um, religious uh, tenets and principles into us. Uh, obviously, not with great success, <laughs> but with some perhaps short-term success. What, what age did you then uh, leave? You at some point you left India when you were ten years old. No, sir? one, one when I was one. When, I mean, well, you left India for – that was Pakistan, but yeah. you left for the West, for oh, England. I left Pakistan when I was 10, yes. Yeah. And then moved to England? Uh, I was sent to England I, uh, to boarding school with my brother. We were on our own. My family I didn't see. come with me. But, uh, um, and we never really went back. Uh, I mean I went back to visit once, but um, – and that was it. I was brought up in uh, – boarding school and I went to a series of boarding schools and then to university and during the holidays I was living, staying with a an English family which received overseas students and so on. So in fact you never were really raised to be a particularly devout Muslim. No, I, that's, yes, it uh, comes as, usually comes as a great disappointment for many. Uh, <laughs> it makes a better story I think the way Hitchens characterized it. And I think that was the point of the, telling right. the story That's right. That was the night, point of it, my story. That yeah. I, they, I'm much better as a myth than reality. <laughs> uh, so the Salman Rushdie affair then, uh, that didn't really make you stop being a Muslim, but it, I, I, I gather, at least from what you were saying last night, but it did sort of wake you up to the dangers of radical Islam. Yes, yes. No, I, I'd obviously lost uh, my faith much earlier because... Um, but I hadn't thought in any precise way about Islam particularly, although I studied uh, Arabic and Persian and Islamic civilization at Edinburgh University uh, between 66 um, and 69. Um, so um, that was an attempt to sort of re- recover something of my, my identity. Uh, but... Um, I wasn't. I wasn't particularly um, religious uh, already. By by, right. But the Salman Rushdie affair really was what and sort then of kicked it off your activism. It really got me worried. Mm-hmm. Making made me think that really this really was danger, and it was a threat to the kind of principles that I uh, I gave my you know, allegiance to: um, freedom of expression. Um, freedom to think and read what I wanted. Um, I, I like that word allegiance because I always tell people my allegiance is to a set of principles. It's not to a party. It's not to a country. It's not right. to – my allegiance is to a set of, of values, a set of ideas. Exactly, yes. And when, when people are you – know, when, when actions conform to those ideals, I support those actions whether it's my own country or another. You know? So I, I like that this concept of allegiance to principles. Uh, you spoke last evening of the fact that so many Western intellectuals, and this disturbed you, so many Western intellectuals defended the Ayatollah Khomeini's fatwa against Salman Rushdie and attacked Rushdie 
for daring to insult uh, or, or criticize uh, Islam. Can you give some examples as you gave last night of some of the, the people that uh, sort of were on the wrong side on that one? Yes. Uh, uh, a cent- many, many of the the people who defended Ayatollah, um, not all, there's one shining exception to this, Many of them were very uh, left-wing, like John Berger, who was a Marxist art critic. Uh, Germaine Greer was essentially uh, considered sort of uh, a left-wing uh, intellectual. They blamed the victim and um, thought that uh, the book should be withdrawn and that he should apologize. The exception was... Uh, uh, somebody who I think was a, uh, a conservative uh, historian, uh, Hugh Trevor Roper, later Lord Dacre, was made a lord. Uh, he advocated um, uh, Muslims be- beating up uh, Rushdie in some dark alley. He said it in, it, this would, might teach him some manners. So it would be a very good idea if the Muslims actually took him uh, and beat him up. Uh, I remember you mentioned John Le Carre last night, and I um, remember very much the exchange of letters between him and, and, Hitchens. and, and Christopher Hitchens, who of course Did. is a good friend of Salman Rushdie's and has been one of his staunchest defenders. And they had a series of letters back and forth between them. And I, and I remember even at the time being just absolutely appalled that a writer, I mean a major writer, John Le Carre, certainly yeah. a very popular author, um, I don't think a particularly good one, but a very popular one certainly, who has a sort of a public – Soapbox from which to you know to, to to announce his ideas would come out in favor of death sentences on people for writing their opinion. I was just astonished. I know, I know. It's, it's a very puzzling phenomenon. Uh, it is most um, most disappointing. Uh, one of the one of the people who uh, who defended Rashtia, and I've always liked him for that reason. Although I've never read a word by him it was Stephen King Stephen King said that I think he was maybe he was referring to a bookshop or the chain uh, he said that uh, if 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 that particular bookshop or the particular chain of bookstores uh, withdrew the Rushdie book he would never ever allow his books to be displayed in in these in these bookstores. Which is a big threat from and he was in, one of the best-selling authors he, in the yes, world. Yeah. And he was, he was very courageous and he was outspoken and I've always liked him for that. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's a wonderful thing that he – A little bit – I want to return it a little bit to this notion of, of sort of where that support and criticism came from, the fact that it came mostly – the criticism came mostly from the left uh, and because I think that's a very interesting subject. But one of the things that you talked about uh, – I spoke at dinner last night was participating in a debate with Tariq Ramadan. On the fascinating subject, we should not be reluctant to assert the superiority of Western values. And by that, I presume you mean liberal democratic values of liberty, equality, uh, etc. What what else would you put in there? Indeed. Uh, the, 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 the separation of church and state uh, and, and the in, almost – Infinite um, social mobility uh, that that the the, the system in, in in the West allowed. For, I mean, you, you're not uh, condemned to 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 belong to the social class you were born into in the way that uh, Hinduism sort of 
considers yeah, yeah, the, sure. the 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 uh, the low castes uh, permanently um, condemned to 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 to, to this role. Right. Uh, um, yes, no, it's it's uh, equality before the law, which is absolutely. Uh, primordial, uh, and this has been undermined by uh, the Islamists succeeding uh, by legal means, horrifyingly enough, in Britain, for example, in introducing Sharia courts in, into Britain. There are now 80, up to 84 Sharia courts in operation in Great Britain today. So this is one of the great achievements of Western civilization, equality before the law, has now been undermined where uh, women, uh, Sharia, let us not forget, uh, considers women inferior and they have, they suffer from all sorts of disabilities under these, uh, these laws. It's just quite extraordinary that uh, the West should, should be uh, accepting these. Now, is my understanding of that situation is that they allow, they have Sharia courts that they allow for disputes where the parties agree to put themselves under the authority of that court in disputes among Muslims. Is that Well, that, that's the theoretical uh, assumption. And the, uh, the, the other supposed uh, uh, safeguard is that it must not, these, these decisions taken by the Sharia court must not go against any prevailing law of the land. But in reality, it doesn't work that at all, work like that in that, uh, in that way. The women who uh, are brought before the Sharia court, they don't even know that they have the right not to go to these laws. They're frightened. They, 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 they face ostracism. They face divorce. They could, they could be uh, physically attacked. I mean, they, they, they do not understand what is uh, – uh, that they have an option. Right. And rather than protecting them against that kind of intimidation, it <laughs> you're yes, it, it, it makes it. their yeah. position even more precarious. Right. You, uh, you spoke last night. Uh, you made an interesting uh, statement in your talk. You said the West seems unwilling to vigorously defend itself, defend its values against radical Islam. And I, I assume you don't mean militarily defend itself, which clearly we are capable of doing and, and, and more than willing to do. Uh, you mean intellectually defend itself. Yes. Uh. Well, I – why why we make exceptions for 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 islam um, this you see in this double standards in in the way we talk about christianity uh the and the, the way we talk about islam uh, um, the way uh, islam is portrayed in 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 the media and so on they they got out of the way to to not to offend muslims and you would never, you would never get that kind of treatment for for, for Christians. Uh, uh, it's scandalous that that uh, people are not allowed to criticize Islam without fear, uh, without fear uh, and intimidation. It's just appalling. I, I certainly, I, I very strongly agree with the, with the notion that we should not be at all shy about asserting uh, the superiority of of liberal democratic values of of, of Western values in that regard. The critic would probably respond, well, you know, Western nations, particularly the United States, frequently violate those principles themselves. And so who are you to, you know, impose those on? Um, but in fact, it's important to defend those values even when our own nations 
violate yes, it's, them. It's, it's, this is re- we're talking about relative. Uh, it's, it's a relative situation in, in a sense. We don't always live up to our values. Certainly, it's absolutely true. But uh, it's uh, and it's ironic that 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 question was asked. Uh, uh, at a public uh, forum in London, because you, it, so it was obvious that 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 debate could not have been held in an Islamic country. Right, and it it was uh, the mere fact that it took place in London was an example right. of of this. That's not happening in Riyadh or Kabul. And, and, or, right. Yes, and and uh, um, we. We just got to we just got to be a little bit more confident of our own values. But the point is, we have been undermined uh, under the influence of people like the, the postmodernists and people like Edward Said. Uh, we have uh, entered the domain of multiculturalism, uh, which is a, a, a form of relativism, which means that. Students, uh, young people at universities are no longer sure that it's uh, of what what values they should <laughs> should defend. They're, they're shy of saying that, hey, this is better than that. They're, they're afraid of making cross cultural judgments. This is a, a, a result of uh, thirty years uh, of multiculturalism. And you know, and, and I think that's particularly tragic because I think. The, to me, the term multi- multiculturalism doesn't have to mean that. There is a reasonable conception of multiculturalism. And unfortunately, in, in too many universities, I agree with you, it's taught it, – it be, it's relativism is what it becomes. It becomes this cultural yeah. relativism, postmodernism. Um, and you use the example of Danish cartoons, of course, which has you know, made huge news, which so many Western publications refuse to republish. They would discuss the controversy. They wouldn't show the cartoons that had sparked it all off. Uh, and, you know, I, and I published them on my blog and I know a lot of others who didn't, but, but very few mainstream publications in the United States would republish those cartoons. And that very fact, that cowardice only spurs on more violent threats, doesn't it? Absolutely. Coming, coming back to, to multiculturalism, I was a teacher in a primary school in London in the 70s. And I wholeheartedly uh, advocated and adhered to and, and, uh, and practiced the, the principles of multiculturalism. But as you said, multiculturalism comes in, in two forms, like, like cholesterol. There is bad multiculture right. and good. good. Uh, and uh, the, the, the thought behind the multiculturalism that, that I gave my, uh, my backing to was – the thought that if, since you have so many children in your in your classroom, from uh, 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 the children of parents who are from outside Europe, it was uh, it made sense to uh, to say positive things about their parents' culture and not denigrate them, not to make them feel inferior, so that they could. Perform better, if you like. They could feel more at ease, and, and integrated. And I think to use that as an opportunity to learn about other cultures. Absolutely, and, 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 it, and it was imperative for the native uh, people, native children, if you like, to to learn about uh, other cultures. Uh, and, um, and then, what was your question? They said, "Well, that's a very positive aspect of it, but right. then, unfortunately, it gets taken far too far. Yes, and turns into this sort of mushy." 
relativism, and, and we'll return to that in a moment. I noticed that your book, Defending the West, was praised by conservatives like Daniel Pipes. Uh, and, of course, it criticizes the views of Edward Said, uh, who was something of a lion of the American left. Do you find that your work is generally more accepted and, pray, and praised in the United States by the right or the left? Yes, um, my book was not uh, reviewed by any of the left uh, or, or liberal, I suppose you would say, uh, press. Uh, I, in fact, talked to the deputy editor of the New York Times Book Review, and the reason he gave, um, I found I, I, I'm very skeptical of his reasoning. But he said, "Well, we we considered reviewing your book, but we finally decided that Edward Said was uh, no longer of any interest; that he had no longer any influence, which is nonsense." It would be certainly a shock to most academics in that an field. An utter nonsense. Yeah. I gave a talk at the Columbia University bookstore which is uh, just on, on, on campus. You, know, you go down. Uh, which is where I, Saeed taught. I gave a talk yeah. on Edward Said, on my book. Uh, this is about uh, a year and a half ago. And as I went down the steps into the bookstore, the first thing that met my eyes was this enormous pile of Orientalism, the book that made or, uh, Edward Said famous, on a, on a book, on, on, a, on a table right in front of me. And there was no sign of any of my books, although I was actually giving the talk. So did you sign copies of his book? For <laughs> so this fascinates me, this split between left and right on these issues, because first of all, I think it's entirely unjustified. And second, I think it's even a little bit dangerous. And I had this very similar conversation here in the studio with Ayan Hirsi Ali. Uh, several months ago when she was here in town and, and, and we had very much the same conversation in which she said, listen, I consider myself a liberal. And yet most of the support that she got in the United States also came from the right. She was, she is still a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a conservative, uh, think tank. And we spoke about the response of the Western left and, and American liberals in particular to the threat of, of radicalism. And I don't want to overstate this. It doesn't mean there's no genuine concern on the left for this. But it seems to me there's sort of two factions to the American left here. One is the sort of what I call the rationalist left. And the other is this postmodernist left. And they have entirely different views of the world even though they are both considered liberals. Uh, and, and, you know, you are a staunch critic of that postmodernism, uh, as am I. So, so speak for a minute about the fact that, that these liberal democratic values are in fact universal as opposed to just power structures uh, and social constructs, uh, uh, you know, which is sort of the, the position of postmodernism. No, I'm not so – I'm not – I haven't really picked up all the nuances of the uh, political currents in the United States – but in Europe, uh, uh, the former leftist like Nick Cohen, I don't know if you know him, uh, he writes, uh, he used to write for The Guardian, I think. He wrote a book, What's Left? Um, he was shocked by the, the attitude to, to, to the left to which he had give, you know, given his life for vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, uh, radical Islam. And he... he, he uh, he couldn't understand it either. He was very, very, very shocked. Um, um, but 
one of the things that uni- unites the left are essentially as far as um, in Europe, that is, uh, 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 and Islam, uh, is that they, they both uh, are critical and hate, in fact, have a, a visceral hatred of the United States. So they, they somehow feel that they should be allied to a third world uh, religion, to a third world movement, uh, perhaps, and, and they cannot uh, uh, imagine uh, siding with the United States in this war on terror, for example. If the whole thing has been, has been muddied. The waters have been muddied by uh, political allegiances and so on. Sort of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. And I think, I think that's exactly right. I think there is a lot of that going on. And, 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 and I think that's exactly why the left shouldn't allow this to become a conservative issue uh, and allow conservatives to take the lead on criticizing Islam. Uh, because you know, I think a lot of people on the left are afraid that that if uh, if they criticize Islam too loudly, that it feeds into arguments for military intervention, you know, in in in, in the invasion of Iraq and so forth. That it feeds those arguments, <clears throat> but in fact, there isn't necessarily any relationship. I mean, you had Christopher Hitchens, uh, who was certainly an enthusiastic supporter of the invasion of Iraq and is a staunch liberal critic of Islam, but then you had Salman Rushdie who was opposed to the war in Iraq. You can be equally vociferous in asserting the supremacy of, 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 of Western values uh, and, and in criticizing Islam and take any position you want in terms of militarization. It doesn't necessarily mean you want to go blow them off the planet. No, no, indeed. I, <clears throat> there, are, there are also some conservatives who don't, for example, uh, 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 in Iran, Iran rather than Iraq, uh, Michael Ledeen is a conservative he, he does not advocate uh, military in, intervention in, 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 in Iran, but uh, he, he remains very critical of, uh, of Islam and the situation in, in Iran. Yeah. You know, my concern here, the reason why I think this is so dangerous for the left not to take the lead in criticizing this is because if you allow the right to take the lead in criticizing Islam and in, and in taking seriously the threat of radical Islam – then inevitably that message is going to be, be wrapped up in um, uh, sometimes xenophobia and outright racism. Uh, if we allow Geert Wilders, uh, for example, or, or Nick Griffin of the British National, if we allow them to take the lead in this, it's going to be wrapped up in some terrible ideas, some very unliberal ideas. And I think we need to take the lead in that and say, yes, we can still uh, assert the superiority of Western values. We can still assert the universality of those values. Um, and, and in fact, we have to in order to do it without having it corrupted and made into something far worse than it should be. Right. No, I agree. I, that summarizes my fears and I have disappointment with, with the I, uh, The only time I've voted uh, in my adult life, uh, I it was once in England, I voted for the Labour Party and the Jim Callaghan. And in France, uh, with François Mitterrand. So, uh, but uh, in recent years, because of the attitude to, to radical Islam, I have been rooting for, for, for Republicans. But in fact, in many other ways, they probably aren't. No, no. I mean, <laughs> your uh, party of choice. So I don't. I don't. Uh, I. I. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me to 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 to, to tell you this. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I vote. Uh, 
I, I, as you said uh, so eloquently, my adherence is to to uh, to certain pr- principles. Let's return to this issue of relativism a bit. Um, one of the things I find fascinating about the advocates of sort of relativistic uh, relativism on the left is that they have no trouble asserting equal rights for women and gays and lesbians and so forth in a Western context. When it's when those things are threatened by the Christian right in this country, as they are uh, every day, they have no trouble boldly asserting the supremacy of 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 those positions. And yet, here comes Islam, radical Islam, which is a far graver threat to those things than the, than the Christian right is here in this country. And, and I have spent my life fighting against the Christian right, and I have no intention of stopping. Um, but they have no trouble asserting that when the threat to it is coming from the Christian right in America. But when it comes to Islam, suddenly – they don't want to take that bold a stand, you know, when the threat is actually even greater. And I, I don't know if you have any insight into this. I just, it's something I find very fascinating and disturbing. No, I, I, I have not. Um, uh, it, it, it's, uh, it's very much tied up with, with the years of indoctrination uh, resulting in, 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 in relativism. <clears throat> so any, any, Culture which um, adheres to some sort of uh, the, the moral equivalence argument, and this is significant that during during the Cold War, uh, you had uh, liberal newspapers in, in Britain. It would have been uh, the Guardian, uh, the, which uh, which often use the moral equivalence argument saying that, you know, the United States was no better than the Soviet Union. Uh, It was so flagrantly idiotic. It was, you know, you only had to go and and, uh, investigate. I mean, people had been warning about uh, Stalin's... uh, uh, the great terror, you know, Robert Conquest uh, and so on had, had been telling us for, for years, but we just didn't listen uh, for, for ideological reasons. It was just unthought, unheard of to try and support the United States. Uh, it, it, it somehow shook, shook their very being, their, all their fundamental principles. You know, there, it seems to me that there's you – know, after your talk last night, I made the comment about, about – you know, you had, you had remarked that uh, there's moral equivalence between – between the West and Islam, and between Christianity and Islam in particular. Right. And again, I'm a stark critic of the Christian right and Christian fundamentalists in this country and fight against it every day. But the notion that that the Christian right in this country is anywhere near as dangerous uh, or as warped in ideology as radical Islam is just silly. And I think you could demonstrate it the same way with the moral equivalence found in the Cold War that you spoke about. I mean, if you really believe that, then go to Washington, D.C. and criticize the American government and then go to this old Soviet Union and criticize their government yeah, absolutely. and find out this what your is, response this is, is. This is right. right. In one place, you have – you know they're going to guarantee your right to, to criticize the government. In the other place, you're going to be in a gulag. Right. No, I remember um, at the time uh, – well, I read about it much later, of course. I was too – I was not particularly interested in – 
uh, at that age, uh, I remember reading about uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre saying, well, it may well be true, the, the, the Stalin gulag uh, death camps and the show trials, they all may, uh, you know, but we can't, we can't talk, we mustn't uh, talk about it in public because this would be to demoralize the proletariat. We can't possibly criticize Stalin. It would be bad, bad for the proletariat in, in the West. And yet the, pro, the proletariat were the very people being abused by Stalin. I know. This is, a, a, this is the kind of uh, arrogance of, of, of intellectuals who somehow think that they're, they're in touch with the feelings of the proletariat and they're speaking for them. They're, they're not. I mean, they're, they're, this is this what ha- as far, and it's exactly the same thing happened for uh, for Islam with with uh, that postmodernist, the man who influenced Edward Said. That's Michel Foucault. He made a complete idiot, an ass of himself over Iran. He actually welcomed Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, revolution as, as being something really authentic. And anybody who criticized it, especially from, from Iran, was, he, was, he, he would dismiss them as being not authentically Muslim. So you, you, you have no grounds to, to criticize uh, uh, because you're not Muslim. You're not real Muslims and you're not a real Iranian. You're, you've been too infected by Westernism. Isn't it interesting that those postmodernists that, that are in, interested in deconstructing everything, they will deconstruct everything except their own ideology. <laughs> Indeed. And, and uh, the man, man uh, as more and more evidence came out of Iran about the executions, or, you know, I don't know how many, I think they're in the hundred thousands now, who were executed uh, by Khomeini, uh, intellectuals, uh, communists, and so on? He, he just re- refused to back down. He 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 just showed showed what how arrogant these these particularly the French intellectuals are. They somehow think that they 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 are morally superior and that they don't have to to change their views or take take into account reality. What's really interesting though, I think if you look back at the history of, of Iran and you look back at America's history of involvement there. In 1953, we overthrow Mohammad Mossadegh, mm. uh, the only democratically elected man the country had ever had. And I really believe the entire history of the Middle East is different if we don't make that because the biggest mistake we made in the Cold War, had we supported Mossadegh rather than deposed him in 1953, we might well have seen a free democratic Iran in the middle of the Middle East as a shining – a genuine democracy, not imposed militarily but bubbling up from the people themselves in the middle of the Middle East as a shining example of Western values. And we might well have seen an entirely different history to the Middle East. And I think this again goes back to why I think it's so important for the left to be able to make this argument because we can make this argument for the supremacy of Western values while still critiquing co- consistently uh, the West mistakes in dealing with with – the Middle East, whereas the right is who you know tends always to favor throwing the military around and throwing our power around and supporting dictators in the third world, they can't make that critique on both sides of it. The left can, which is I think why it disappoints me so much that so many of us don't. I'm into that. Let's take a short break here for a public service announcement. We'll be back in just a minute.
You're listening to Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids. Hey parents, finding it hard to communicate with kids in today's world of ever-changing slang? Hi son. Excuse me? Introducing the Communicizer. Just strap non-toxic Communicizer to your mouth and go from boring old man speak. Oh, you know, I'm here if you want to talk. To 100% off the chain. Text me whenever, yo. It's that easy. Thanks to Communicizer, I'm relevant to my kids again. I mean, I'll fly, boo. And now when you buy Communicizer, you get the auto-tune attachment free. Sounds so hip-hop, your kids will want to talk to you for hours. I used to have to walk three miles uphill to school every morning short day. I love you, Dad. I love you too, son. Communicizer is not available in stores because it doesn't exist. But that's okay. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Because kids in foster care don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to adoptuskids.org. Welcome back to Declaring Independence. We are here with uh, Ibn Warak, a senior fellow at the Center for Inquiry. Uh, you characterized Edward Said's position about the relationship of the Arab world to the West. As, quote, were it not for the wicked imperialists, racists, and Zionists, we would be great once more. And part of what your book did was point out that much of that previous greatness to which Arab nationalists look back so fondly was itself built on imperialism and racism. Is that an accurate sort of statement of your views? Um, I'm not sure I follow you there. That the greatness is built on imperialism, racism. Well, those were sort of the, the great past. They looked back at the the, the Ottoman Empire oh, and, and Caliphate and so forth. Okay. That they were themselves imperialists. Oh, yes, indeed, and authoritarian and so forth. Yes, yes. It, 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 this is extraordinary uh, situation. You will, if you look at any general book on the history of Islamic civilization. It will paint in glowing colors how the, the, the Arabs coming, a handful of Arabs practically coming out of the Arabian Peninsula, how they conquered most of the civilized world in, in, within a dozen years, uh, in the most positive terms possible. You cannot imagine a textbook talking in the same way about the British taking over when, 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 uh, the large parts of the globe was, uh, colored uh, pink or, 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 or orange on atlases to show the extent of the, the British Empire. I, cannot, I cannot imagine modern historians talking in the same way that the, the historians of Islamic empires talk. There was a recent book by, by Hugh Kennedy which had uh, the great Islamic empires, I think it, it was called, the title itself would not be acceptable. Can you say the great British empires? And it was built uh, – it was uh, inherently uh, inegalitarian because Islam had to assert its superiority. It was quite, quite clear and people lived on sufferance uh, at a – at an inferior level, they were not given the same kind of rights uh, uh, under Sharia, uh, under Islamic uh, law. The the non-Muslims uh, had to pay uh, uh, poll tax and they had to pay it under humiliating ex- circumstances. Uh, uh, the Jews uh, from time to time suffered uh, from from massacres, uh, 4,000 exterminated in Fez, uh, the, 
in the Middle Ages, the same thing happened throughout uh, the Islamic Empire. No, it, it is uh, the, the supposed golden age of Spain has been much exaggerated, uh, but there were genuine there were genuine moments of uh, <coughs> greater tolerance, I guess. There certainly greater uh, scientific research, greater contribution to human knowledge. Yes, that I would uh, accept. You spoke of your own process of leaving Islam behind as one that's sort of an evolving process. Um, as over time, you became a skeptic or a free thinker, which is similar to how a lot of us, I think, left Christianity. I certainly had a similar experience, which I think points out an important thing, which is it isn't enough to say what you are no longer. It's important to replace that with something, with, 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 with you know a different view of the world, and you replaced it with a, a rational, scientific view of the world. Yes. Yeah. That's right. I, my, my book, uh, Defending the West, I spell out what I think were the 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 strengths of certain values uh, uh, the, the the strength of uh, uh, Western civilization, uh, although of course they were not always these values were not always uh, uh, valued if, you, if right. I can put it that way um, and we only have to think of um, the the uh, west uh, I, I remember working for an organization called the, the Defense for the uh, Committee for the Defense of Democracy in Greece. This was the time when Greece was under the dictators, uh, and at the same time, uh, Portugal was under the dictators. Not to mention Spain. So the West hasn't always lived by exactly the same values. By that, by Western values, I mean the values of liberal democracy indeed yeah and that's why i think it's important to to have that allegiance to that to those set of values criticize our own country as hardly as we you know, as, as as staunchly as we do other countries right because it's the values themselves that are universal right uh, not which team you're on this is not a game of sports you know right. um, you spoke i thought we an interesting point last night of islam's 1 2 and 3 uh, one being what's in the quran itself uh, and what muhammad himself taught the second being the set of traditions, the Sharia law, um, and the other traditions that sort of have built up around that. And the third being the way Muslims have actually lived uh, and, and how they actually guide their lives. And you point out that Muslim societies have often been quite tolerant, even if the core of the religion itself is not. Um, that's an important distinction to be made, I think. Uh, and I was glad to hear you make it that, that while there may be an awful lot of barbarism in the religion itself, that doesn't make all – Muslims barbaric because they don't all live that way. Exactly, exactly. The, yes, uh, often uh, tolerant uh, Muslims uh, are, are tolerant despite Islam's one and two. So that's very important uh, to realize that uh, the, by uh, Muslims become uh, tolerant by by ignoring certain things which are. Uh, prescribed by by Islamic law, uh, I don't think there's any country in the Islamic world which actually uh, practices uh, a lapidation for adultery apart from Iran. It was certainly I don't I can't remember it ever being practiced in in India. Uh, sorry, in in Pakistan, for example. I really don't. Uh, 
So it, it, it was a revival in, in, in Iran post Khomeini, uh, which is really rather horrific. Uh, uh, I think perhaps now uh, there are certain other Islamic countries like Somalia perhaps. I can't remember. There, I know there are two or three others who've uh, adopted this, this, this harsh practice. And I think if you look at Christianity – you find a, something a sort of a similar history here. That if you look at the Bible, you'll find plenty of support for very similar forms of barbarism here. I mean, death, stoning to death for adultery is in the Bible as well, for homosexuality, for not being a virgin on your wedding day. You know, the, those sorts of barbarism is in the Bible too. And of course, Christians, uh, you know, some of them still advocate that sort of thing, the, the Christian Reconstructionists, but they're a pretty small group. The rest of them, Christianity has been humanized over the last few hundred years by mixture with, I think, Enlightenment ideas. And a lot of people have called for a similar and said, you know, Islam needs to go through something similar to that. Um, and, and, and you've written uh, lately uh, on the, the CFI blog about real reformers uh, in the Islamic world, people who really are pushing for genuine reform. And you mentioned at dinner last night that there are people who are viewed as moderates, people who are viewed as reformers in the United States within the Islamic world that you really don't think are moderates at all. And then at the same time, pointing to people you really do think are. So who, can you name some of the people that are sort of – we look at as moderates here in the West that you don't think really are? And then those people, you know, the opposite, the ones who genuinely are reformers and the people we really should be listening to? Yes. Uh, I think Tariq Ramadan, whom I've debated in public, is not a moderate. He advocates uh, – he, he he talks he talks uh, uh, he, uh, he, he preaches when he's talking to a Muslim audience he, he's preaching quite uh, violent uh, jihadist kind of, uh, of of principles and when he's talking to 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 Westerners to journalists and so on he he softens his talk. But uh, he has been caught out. He, people have recorded what he said in front of an Islamic audience speaking in Arabic and when he's talking to, to, um, to Westerners. Uh, and, and even when he's talking to Westerners, he hasn't been able to disguise his, his, his uh, commitments. Uh, um, when when uh, the then Minister of the Interior in France, uh, Sarkozy, asked him about the the punishment for adultery under Islam, uh, lapidation, uh, Ramadan said, well, he didn't condemn it outright. He just said, well, we should have a moratorium. Uh, so he's a very dangerous man who, who has an Islamist ag agenda. He wants... Uh, the propagate the ideas of his grandfather, uh, who was the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Hassan al-Banna. Uh, we, we can't hold that against him, but uh, simply because he's the gr grandson. But he, d we c but he does actually advocate, he, he adheres to everything that his grandfather taught, which was essentially the replacement of Western uh, democracy with with Islamic law. The, some of the liberals who uh, I should like to see more talked of uh, are the ones I mentioned in my blog on CFI. Uh, one of them is Ahmed al-Baghdadi of Kuwait. There is uh, Tariq Hegi of Egypt. 
there is uh, Sadiq al-Azam of Syria. They, they unfortunately are not reported in the Western press. They, the, the three uh, secularists I talked about in my blog, in, in all coming from Kuwait, uh, they really should be better known. Uh, and I wish that they were interviewed, people sought them out. I, I put out a feeler hoping to contact one of them, but he, he's in hiding. And when I last heard uh, about him, he was uh, uh, seeking a political asylum in the West. I don't know what happened to him, unfortunately. I wish I could follow up his story. Uh, there, there again is a perfect example of where that whole moral equivalence falls. Critics of the United States are not in hiding. Exactly. <laughs> they don't have to go into hiding. We don't have gulags for right. them. Uh, and there's a, a perfect example. Um, the last few years, the UN has passed a non-binding resolution calling for states to prohibit the defamation uh, of, religion. of religion, something you and I have both written about. I think it's very dangerous. But you pointed out something I didn't know last night, which was that there were non-governmental organizations in the Islamic world who spoke out against those resolutions. Yes, they're a very courageous group. Uh, we, we've always been ra- – that we – when I say we, I mean uh, CFI, for example, and very, uh, various ex-Muslims uh, like me. We've often been rather inhibited about contacting them or, or even mentioning them in print, thinking that we would be putting their lives in danger. That we Not would be in fact fee. providing a yeah. kind of hit list for the Islamists, yeah. but now that they're actually speaking up themselves, uh, I think uh, humanist organisations should get in touch with them and, and have a major conference uh, where these people can put forward their ideas. But unfortunately, we just don't have the backing. We about oh, it must be th- three years ago already that we had a conference in Florida, the Secular Islam Summit. Um, I can't remember the dates exactly. I think it was three years ago, uh, where we tried to get as many people from the, from the Islamic world, uh, and, but many of them were uh, afraid. Um, and it, I would have liked to have had more people from the Islamic world, but we didn't manage to get too many. I think it's really important, though, and let's end it there, because I think it's very important to, to not just criticize what goes on in the Islamic world, but also to to build up the genuine reformers there. Those are the strands of positivity yes. that we need to strengthen uh, and reach out to and put up on a pedestal as examples, uh, rather than focusing so obsessively on Osama bin Laden and, and his ilk. Well, I, I wish I wish that the, the liberal press... Uh, did a bit more of their homework and went and interviewed these people. I really do. I think it would help a great deal. And, you know, as a former stand-up comedian, I really appreciated one of the things that you said last night, which was that, you know, we'll know there's been real progress when we have a Muslim life of Brian. <laughs> and I thought that's really – you're exactly right. I mean, that's when you'll know that we've really got some some progress going on there. Uh, even thank you so much for taking the time out to be with us after a very long day. I know it's been uh, – been a tough day for you and i appreciate very much you uh, being here thank you very much i can now finish my my champagne back to the champagne yes 
To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.